Hi, I'm Ricky Deriz, and welcome to the Mind That Ego podcast. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Bodian. Stephen is a licensed therapist and spiritual teacher who has pioneered the integration of Western psychology and Eastern wisdom. He is the author of numerous books, including Wake Up Now, Beyond Mindfulness, and Meditation for Dummies, which has sold half a million copies since its launch in 1998. Stephen has practiced for many years with masters in non-dual wisdom traditions. Since 2007, he has led an intensive program in spiritual transformation known as a School for Awakening and dawns on decades of experience as a therapist and teacher to offer specialized guidance for those on the path of awakening. So Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Ricky. Great great to see you. It's good to see you. Um, I actually, I want to begin by mentioning that Meditation for Dummies has been a book that I've had with me for a very long time and I find myself referring back to it constantly. So I want to thank you for that and and the impact it's had on me personally. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. It's very, it's all-encompassing. It's an all-encompassing book and and it, it lays a great foundation. What I would like to discuss today is to find and and discern the the difference between the authentic path and almost the traps that we can fall into the the ways in which we can get stuck so i'd like to begin by hearing a little more about your background um, into the spiritual path and how you've also worked on your own spiritual discernment uh well that's a very open-ended question um uh, you know, I stumbled on the path through, uh, as many people do back in the day, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you, uh, when there weren't that many books, I stumbled around a book, uh, some books that mentioned Zen, and then I started looking into Zen, and uh, ultimately, after several psychedelic journeys that didn't work out so well, I ended up in a Zendo, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so that was, a, you know, I felt like I was kind of stumbling and you know, and fumbling my way into meditation, you know, beautiful, you know, for which I'm very grateful. And uh, when I started to meditate, when I came into the Zendo, I felt immediately like I had come home. It felt very familiar, almost like I'd been doing it for, for lifetimes. I didn't, I still don't have any experience to pass lives, but it felt very familiar, very, uh, very um, resonant for me. And so I, I, I basically... Uh, continued practicing Zen for many, many years. So uh, I trusted the process. I trusted that it was an established tradition. And so I, I didn't need a whole lot of discernment in terms of uh, choosing you know, one thing over another. Uh, I was taken, uh, I was devoted, and I went with that. You know? mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, my first two teachers were excellent teachers with uh, tremendous integrity, Suzuki Roshi, and then uh, Coben Chino, um, and I know we were going to talk a little about discernment in terms of teachers. Yes. But then I ended up with a teacher who turned out to be lacking in integrity, fundamentally, in significant ways. Um, and um, it took me a while to realize that. See, that's where the discernment comes in, uh, because this teacher um, put out a good uh, image. Uh, professed to be a great master, uh, had uh, the approval of several different lineages, 
so for all intents and purposes, seemed like someone who's really well qualified to do what he was doing. And at that level, I imagine he was, right? And I was impressed by that. Uh, but as it turned out, and he didn't really hide it particularly, uh, although, again, it was hard to discern, he was really an alcoholic. Uh, and um, also, as we discovered later, um, I discovered later, everyone discovered later, he was um, propositioning women in the interview room. So he was basically propositioning his female students when he would come to uh, the uh, interviews uh, inebriated. So pretty unskillful, uh, harmful, abusive behavior. Uh, finally, um, I left after five years with him not really necessarily because of that, but I, I, it was more like an intuitive sense of this doesn't feel right to me. There was just this gut sense of this all feels off. I don't feel I'm making progress on my own journey. The advice I'm getting from the teachers doesn't really feel helpful to me, particularly from he was my primary teacher. And um, I felt I needed to study my own psychology, felt like I needed to study um, psychology in general to be of benefit because I was studying, you know, and training to be a teacher. So, uh, in fact, I ended up at a conference called What is Sanity? Uh, Buddhist and Western Approaches. It was one of the first uh, of its kind, actually. Uh, and uh, I went to that conference and I met with several people, Jack uh, Engler, uh, Dan Brown, who's now a teacher of Mahamudra, uh, beautiful young men, who are exploring this interface between Western psychology and, and uh, spirituality, meditation. I was really taken, and that inspired me to leave, go back to school, study psychology. That was a, a moment of tremendous discernment, you can say, which required also tremendous courage on my part, because I felt like leaving the uh, practice that I've been doing for so many years, I was really a born-again Zen Buddhist, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, I'd given everything to it. This is 10 years worth of my whole life. You know, mm. I devoted myself to the practice to leave that without having really completed my, my training, my, my study, uh, was, um, to my mind, I, I, I felt somehow like I was making a mistake at one level. Uh, I, I doubted myself, but at another level, I really knew in mm. my heart this was the right thing to do. And I think this is where discernment comes in because the mind may tell us all kinds of things and it tends to be self-doubting, right? Yeah. But then there's a deeper dimension, whether we call it heart or intuition or gut knowing or whatever it is, that we really need to learn to trust uh, yeah. from the very beginning of the path. And particularly when we've gone a ways, you know, there's a place for heeding the advice of a teacher and doing what they say to do, mm. uh, you know, especially if it's not obviously harmful to us, uh, and, and learning that way, that, that yeah. has its place. And, of course, I did that. I followed the guidance of my teachers very, very uh, devotedly. But at a certain point, we have to, there may be a parting of the ways where we mm. need to trust our own inner guidance, even though the teacher or the tradition is telling us otherwise yeah and i know you you mention this idea of a, a teacher's role 
being important on the path, but also being one of guidance and pointing to the moon rather right. than saying, follow this strict, these strict guidelines. Right. Um, how, like if, if someone's in that position, if someone has a, a an earnest um, interest and, and they, they see someone that they feel is enlightened or at least at a high level, how you mentioned kind of trust in the intuitive how do you balance that with a lot of teachers who will reflect or, or a lot of teachers who might accuse a student of having ego or projecting when they might talk up or set boundaries or question the teacher's method well i would i would uh, really um question the integrity of any teacher who does that actually mm -hmm. uh, i think it's the role of a teacher to um, encourage a student to trust their own wisdom mm. from the outset. Yeah. I, fortunately, the teacher I met after I left Zen, a number of years after, was Jean Klein, the, the beautiful European master of Advaita Vedanta, who uh, from the very outset uh, exemplified that quality of integrity mm. and would teach that that the teacher's role is to free the student from the very mm. beginning. A teacher needs to free the student from any bondage yeah. to the teacher at all. Mm -hmm. That was his way. In fact, uh, one of the things that struck me about him uh, and uh, caused me to really uh, trust his guidance was that I never felt from the very beginning that he wanted me to be his teacher, that is his student, and mm. didn't see me as his student, mm. you know, all the other teachers I've been with, I could tell they saw me as their student. Yeah. It was going to reflect on them and carry their teachings forward. Yeah. Or, you know, glorify their name or whatever. Whereas he, you know, he had no interest in that. It was very mm -hmm. obvious. And to me, that was like, oh, thank goodness. You know, mm -hmm. uh, this is someone I can follow with confidence. Yeah. But in that point, in pointing you back to yourself, that's and I guess it. that process helps you to refine, then refine discernment. It kind of has a, a double impact. Because ultimately, who is the one who is going to decide whether to move forward on the path or not? Ultimately, yeah. it comes back to you. Yeah. No one else can live that journey for you. Mm -hmm. So at every moment, there has to be discernment. Yeah. And we, you know, people that are interested in development, they talk of the word empowerment a lot. And I feel that you also mentioned the, the guru image as being archetypal on some level. And a lot of people go to spirituality because they want to heal. They might have psychological issues that are unaddressed that they, they go to spirituality for. Right. That in terms of empowerment, do you feel that from the offset, there's a dynamic that if a teacher lacks integrity, the dynamics almost established that that projection can make the teacher appear as infallible, which then makes it becomes a power dynamic, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's a wonderful book by a Jungian called Power in the Helping Professions, mm. in which he goes into, from a very Jungian point of view, the, the dynamics that get set up in the projection. You see, the, the student projects you know, as one of my Zen colleagues and, and teachers used to say, uh, a, a teacher represents a whole world of meaning to a student. So when a teacher 
betrays a student's trust. Uh, they're betraying the whole tradition. Mm. So teachers who betray their students' trust and abuse uh, a student, take advantage of a student, then turn the student away from the dharma, mm. away from the truth, away from the path. That's a tremendous amount of power and tremendously um, uh, damaging, hurtful, yeah. potentially. So a teacher needs to be very mindful of how they're coming across, and students need to uh, check a teacher out. You know, the Dalai Lama has said, in response to some Tibetan teachers who have acted unskillfully, that uh, you do well to check a teacher out for a, a number of years before really becoming their student. Mm. Sounds wise uh, to me. Yeah, it, it does, and I, I think it's learning even even acting if there's an element of surrender like if it, it at some point there has to be a willingness to 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 surrender or at least to be willing to take on board reflections or if there's a let's say specific ego traits that someone points out if you're too close and too defensive that growth can be stifled but it's almost as if the discernment comes before the surrender. So you have trust in that surrendering process to the teaching and not the teacher necessarily. Well, yes, I think that's well put. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ultimately, what are we surrendering to? We're surrendering to our very own true nature. We're, we're surrendering to the truth. You know, we're not surrendering to a person. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that can be very easily confused. Yeah. And teachers can you know, confuse it and use it uh, as a way to exploit I'm thinking of the teachers, the role of teachers and, and this looking at it as a, a chicken or egg scenario. Like, do you feel that teachers are drawn, like some people that have more narcissistic tendencies are drawn to those roles? Or do you feel that people can believe their own hype and that can almost recrystallize a spiritual ego in that role? Or do you feel it's all, a combination? All of the above. Yeah. yeah. I think what you're saying is accurate. Yeah. People can believe their own hype. They can delude themselves into thinking they're more advanced or awakened than they really are. And then I also believe that, uh, and have had experience of, because uh, I would say that Zen master who was taking advantage of the students was narcissistic for sure. Mm. Uh, I, I knew him quite well. I was his attendant for six months. I spent quite a bit of time with him. I traveled with him. So I, I got to watch him up close. Mm. Uh, so I would say he's definitely narcissistic. And I think that a lot of research has been done on narcissists and positions of power. Um, narcissistic people are drawn to positions of power. They like to be in the limelight. They like to people to look up to them and see them as powerful. Of course, this feeds the narcissism, right? Mm. They have an exaggerated sense of their own uh, importance right? They uh, tend to be exploitative. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they lack empathy. And so they can be very good competitors, they'll rise to the top, no matter what, no matter who they hurt, you know, but they like to be in positions of authority. And I saw it uh, with that Zen teacher, a number of his uh, disciples who went on to become students themselves were, I would say, significantly narcissistic in my uh, estimation. And do you feel, I feel in the, particularly in recent years, this idea of narcissism is, is mainstream and, and, and maybe oversubscribed as a term in some ways. 
and, and even as a, a blanket curse word, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and I feel, and it maybe just uh, with a nuance it, for for some um, students or people looking in that that can also be a projection, right? At times, not necessarily, but it could be a projection if there's a particularly difficult teaching or a particularly difficult reflection. So this really points to the the nuances on the path and That's, where the and you can turn every difficult situation back to uh, upon the path as they yeah. say you can yeah take yes every situation as an opportunity to reflect on your own involvement yeah how do i get involved with a teacher like this what am i projecting mm-hmm. you know, what am i not seeing clearly uh and that's but that's also the process of discernment isn't it mm-hmm. it involves being aware of our projections is this yeah. a, a real intuition or is this a projection that discernment is key to any kind of intuitive knowing. Yeah. Always we have to be asking ourselves, if, you know, if, uh, do I really uh, understand what's going on here? Or, or, you know, is it in my own mind? Well, I imagine it's a, it's a confusing place to be. If, if there's that conflict and if a teacher is saying, no, it's your ego, it's, the responsibility is yours, that can cause a lot of um, confusion. Again, I would, I would be very suspect of any teachers, a teacher who pushes you to yeah. do something you don't feel comfortable doing. Yeah. I don't see what, where the place for that is on the spiritual path. Mm-hmm. I just don't get it. I mean, there are, there are teachers who, are, you know, of course, are called crazy wisdom. Right? Mm. Crazy wisdom has been used quite a bit. Uh, and um, there are teachers like that, of course, you know, the MARPA, uh, you know, made uh, Milarepa, you know, build these houses and then tear them down, you know. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't, or, you know, ordinarily you wouldn't think you want to work with a teacher who would do that, but somehow that woke Milarepa up, you know, or the teacher who comes and beats the student over the head with a stick. Of course, you know, that's pretty mild and it's very common in Zen. Um, but uh, there are some teachers who are genuinely crazy with them. And the, the one I would point to, uh, and, you know, I think there are people who, are, who will not be happy that I'm doing this, but is, uh, is Chogyam Trungpa, right? Uh, there's a, a documentary about his life and teachings called Crazy Wisdom, which I highly recommend. I, I don't know if it's available to stream for free, but it's a beautiful film. I had the good fortune of being spending some close time with Trungpa. In fact, that Zen teacher visited Trungpa and I was his attendant. So I got to spend five days with Trungpa on retreat, and I spent time at the Metnaropa Institute, and uh, so, um, and uh, you know, he did things that would uh, be called uh, uh, abusive in some ways, mm-hmm. but I think by and large he was a, a really beneficent influence, uh, and uh, I experienced him as being incredibly compassionate. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Trungpa, so it's, it was a mixed bag. I'm, I'm not saying the abuse was justified or, or even necessary. But uh, he comes from a lineage of teachers, all of whom were crazy wisdom teachers. So if anyone can lay claim to being a crazy wisdom teacher, he can. It, it, it goes back, you know, incarnations, one believes in that. And every other Trungpa Tsolku has been a crazy wisdom teacher, doing things, pushing people, things like that in ways they didn't want to be pushed. So there is a place for that, but it's, again, uh, it's, r- it's rare that there's really an authentic. And, and 
what is often said about crazy wisdom teachers is number one, if you're acting from crazy wisdom, then you need to be willing to take the consequences of your action. In other words, if you get arrested for it, you don't protest. You say, okay, you're right. I did that. You take full responsibility for it. You don't get defensive. You say, so if you're really going to be a crazy wisdom teacher, you have to take it all the way. Mm. There's no ego in it at all. Mm. Uh, There are very few like that. And, and, you know, there are those who will do it in a playful way, which I think is, you know, generally less likely to cause harm. You know, like Lee Lazowick is a famous uh, sort of crazy wisdom guy, but I think he was, you know, kind of a, did it more in a playful way. Uh, so. I, I like this. The word that comes to mind also is responsibility. And anyone on the path has to take full responsibility for themselves whilst also knowing through discernment, what behavior is okay, what behavior isn't, knowing yeah. when to set boundaries, knowing when to go for that, that surrender process. Do you, do you feel that sometimes there's talk around like this idea of the shadow and, and that some gurus get to a point where there is no shadow? Do you think that's the case? Or do you feel there's always some residue of shadow elements? Um, who knows, you know? Yeah. I, uh, see, what I would say is, I don't think the journey is ever complete. You know, for example, to say I'm an enlightened person is an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. It's a contradiction in terms. There are no enlightened people, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's awakening, enlightenment, which moves through us and, you know, it can inform our life. But a, a, a separate person can't be enlightened because there are no separate persons. And as soon as you identify as a separate person who's enlightened, that's already ego. So, you know, you, you, you can't say that I'm, I'm done, I'm complete, I have no shadow. As soon as you do that, you know, you, you in a certain way, constellated a shadow. <laughs> yeah, I see that. Yeah. Because you're creating that duality. Yes. Yeah. I have no, you, you're yeah, creating that duality. I have no shadow. Yeah. Be prepared for, there's always going to be more. Mm. Sure. There's always something more. And but I imagine. Human, that, human beings, Yeah. And that, that feedback loop as well, if someone's in a teaching position and they're praised and they build a, a following that if they're not vigilant in their own practice, it can fuel that belief yeah. of being infallible. And That's right. That's right. I really like what we're touching upon here in terms of the, the lived experience, the direct reality of the absolute of, of awakening and the conceptual. And you mentioned earlier how the mind... Can, can make story and the mind can create tangled thoughts. And it's almost as if the heart knows truth and is less corruptible. I wonder if you could talk to this idea of the difference between conceptual spirituality and, and ego-based spirituality and the authentic awakening that, that happens in experience. Well, I think you said it in a certain way. What more is there to say? I mean, ego-based spirituality is precisely that. It's about getting what Jean Klein is called sweets for the ego. Yeah, mm-hmm. spiritual sweets. I've had these great experiences. I've been with Papaji in India. I've got a spiritual name. I've been to all these retreats. I've had these powerful openings. Blah 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 blah. It's just a spiritual resume, which just adds to spiritual ego. You know. We've met people like that, of course, you know. Maybe we've been that ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Where we make all these claims for ourselves. It's just more baggage, yeah? 
that ultimately needs to be dropped, let go of. Yeah. Whereas genuine spirituality is transformative from the inside. It's not about who, who we've been with or what we know or anything like that. It's how we live our lives, you know. I mean, for people, changes. Yeah. For, for people on the path, and I know a lot of people, like I'm someone, I call myself almost like a, a spiritual cherry picker because I've, I've never followed a, a direct lineage um, in terms of a community or I've been taught in Advaita Vedanta and, and most outside of that has come from individual interactions and a lot of reading and, and learning from myself. So learning from my practice of, of meditation but I know that for some people, they want more structure. How would you, you recommend almost using that? How would you, like, whether it's through a, a teacher and an embodiment of, of wisdom or people that want to self-study, do you have any guidance around how to find a, a pathway that can lead people back to themselves? Like, is it, is it more direct or is it, are there ways that you can discern and choose what information might lead you? to a deeper awakening? I have no shortcuts. I think that's, again, that's a matter of spiritual discernment. I mean, uh, how do I know what's right for you? Right? Uh, what resonates for you? What uh, inspires you? Mm-hmm. What uh, do you feel when you hear it? Oh, yeah, that really, that's true. I really get that. Often, what we are drawn to are teachings that we already know are true, see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we didn't already know they were true, we probably wouldn't be drawn to them. See, um, but that's very individual. Some people are drawn to one, and some the other. I think um, one of the things I've been emphasizing lately, and just wrote a little piece for my email newsletter, is I, I think it is helpful to be clear on whether you're on a progressive path or a, a direct path. I don't think they mix and match very well. Uh, you know, I've had people who say, well, you know, I study Vipassana and developing all these, cultivating all these qualities. And at the same time, I'm, you know, in the direct approach. And, you know, if the view is really important, the way we see the path, the way we conceptualize the journey is very important in terms of how the journey unfolds. So I think it's important if you want to do a progressive path where you're developing qualities and, you know, getting further and further along to some uh, aspire to goal, then go with that. But if you really want to be turned around to discover the truth of your uh, inherent uh, wakefulness right now, as it is and always has been, which is the direct approach, then go with that. That's a different view. See, they don't mix very well. So one thing I would say, yeah. How do you view the the seeking impulse for people that have that? The seeking what impulse? The, the seeking impulse, yeah, the, the, that desire to find truth. How, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful quote. I don't know who said it. It may be anonymous, but it's, uh, the truth can't be found through seeking, but only seekers find it. Mm. I love that. It's actually yeah. not true. There's plenty of people who aren't seekers find it. Yeah. But it, it's sort of like, yeah, you don't find it through seeking, but seeking kind of predisposes you to stumble upon it. You know, mm. so there's something paradoxical about the whole thing. Yeah, I've, I find that as well on the spiritual path. It, it becomes increasingly paradoxical when yeah. you attempt, uh, when when there's an attempt to, to conceptualize or add language, it 
you, you see these multiple truths and contradictory terms. Um, I would really like to, in terms of this authentic path and, and um, the conceptual, almost like the, the spiritual ego that can, can keep us stuck, would like to talk about spiritual bypassing and how that how we can remain vigilant if you're if you if you are on the spiritual path how you, you can remain vigilant for for spiritual bypassing well i'm I'm not fond of the word vigilant i i i prefer to recommend that people relax and enjoy life and not be vigilant mm. uh, you know but uh i think i think life will provide you with plenty of opportunity uh if you're open to it see if you're open to feedback then you won't you can't get stuck in, in spiritual bypassing because life will constantly point out to you where you're stuck, right? Yeah. And where you're, uh, you know, uh, identified with some spiritual ego, like we've been talking about. Yeah. Again, spiritual bypassing is again, the issue of the shadow, right? Uh, spiritual bypassing is when we have an image of ourselves as more advanced than we are. And we have all this stuff in the shadow, you know, there's a famous uh, old, uh, New Yorker cartoon many years ago of this, you know, the Zen monk sitting very quietly and peacefully, and he's got this screen behind him, and behind it's all this junk, you know? Mm -hmm. That's the shadow, right? So as long as we're responding to the people around us and living in relation with others, we're going to get feedback, you know, particularly yeah. intimate relationships, close friends, partners, yeah. children, you know? Mm -hmm. If they say you're you're being a jerk often enough, then you're being a jerk, despite how spiritual you think you are. So yeah. I, I think it, it kind of takes care of itself in that way. I think it's also helpful, which doesn't happen so often, to have uh, uh, peers that you're in touch with, fellow teachers, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, offer feedback or to consult with. I've been a part of uh, a group for 25 years. Uh, of spiritual um, teachers slash uh, friends, uh, and uh, we meet, you know, on a regular basis and offer feedback and uh, share experiences, mm -hmm. you know, ask questions of one another and things like that. It's been invaluable. Yeah. It's beautiful that you shared that. I had an interview yesterday, and exactly the the same theme came up of life being it's almost like it's a, a constant training ground of, of reflection of the mind and matter overlap and the lessons that we're we're here to learn and, and there's a lot of beauty in that i find because that it seems that there's a well the, a benevolence and a loving and a compassionate right. source behind that 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 learning and the I lessons say, that, i thought you were going to say compassionate sword Oh, maybe the sword of discernment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a compassionate sword. Cut through those cut, concepts. Cut through those, yeah. Cut through all yeah. the bullshit. Yeah, yeah cut yeah. through the bullshit. Yeah. And I, I, oh, that makes me think of, of the, you know, the, the word that comes to mind is, is self-deception and how we bullshit ourselves a lot on the path as well. And, and that can lead to, to not looking at those reflections, not looking at those lessons. That's right. Yeah. And that's also where a commitment to being honest with oneself is the, mm. the counterpart to being open to the feedback is also to be committed to being honest. Mm. I mean, I always say 
uh, you know, this whole journey is about the truth at every level, every level. Yeah. Not just the highest truth, the ultimate truth, but telling the truth at every mm-hmm. level to ourselves, to others. Yeah. Yeah. And embodying that heartfelt. Embodying that. Yeah. I know you've, you've explored mindfulness and uh, also through this lens of mindfulness being an authentic practice. Could you maybe talk to that briefly? The, the, because it's such a, it's such a, a, a fad almost. And I feel like it's almost like mindfulness light or mindfulness 2.0 that a lot of people are taught. Could you yeah. talk to that, that kind of aspect? Yeah. I don't even know what's being taught anymore um, uh, compared to what I studied, mm. but um yeah, you know, people have said, well, you know, you can uh, you can practice mindfulness and then go out and, uh, you know, exploit others and, uh, you know, uh, earn as much money as you possibly can while destroying the environment. I mean, mm. mindfulness doesn't make us necessarily more uh, socially conscious or mm. environmentally conscious. Um, so, um, you know, mindfulness, as it's taught traditionally, is almost always accompanied by um, some kind of loving-kindness practice. Um, Although in the Zen tradition, not so much. I mean, we didn't call what we did mindfulness Mm. in Zen. Although, you know, the guy who wrote the book on on, uh, uh, mainstream mindfulness, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, began as a Zen practitioner. So, you know, clearly the the practice is very much the same. But Zen, you know, we, we didn't do like a metta loving kindness practice, we did, there was some devotional quality to it, but uh, not so much, uh, you know, extending the, the, the benefits or the, the, uh, the love to all beings. But I think that they've always been balanced traditionally in yeah. some way. Um, and so it's being presented without that counterbalance, you know, mm-hmm. and they were traditionally taught in cultures where, um, altruism was emphasized you know um so i think that's one of the areas where it uh and of course also mindfulness as it's taught you know mindfulness light or make mindfulness as some people call it is not um really um taught as a path to awakening which is the other traditionally mindfulness has been a path to uh awakening discovering our true nature whereas in mick mindfulness it's not it's mm-hmm. about being a better person mm-hmm. being a, more, uh, a successful person which again then is still very much within the realm of ego it's, it just becomes another can be another uh, tool for the ego see? which again is not a, necessarily a bad or a good thing it's neutral yeah but traditionally mindfulness was not neutral it's it's um it's a shame really that it's been absorbed into the current worldview that we have and the current forces or agenda however you'd want to describe it that we have rather than mindfulness as a heartfelt practice and a, a shift um rather than that causing a shift in the worldview the worldview's kind of gobbled it up <laughs> it's true but on the other hand i'd rather have you know a world that's uh, practicing mindfulness even if it's uh, mindfulness light than a world yeah, that's a great point. Doesn't, you know, yeah. So or, you know, that's just what happens. Popular culture co-ops it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to the degree that it turns people 
away from going uh, deeper into genuine mindfulness, genuine uh, spiritual practice, that might not be so good. But on the other hand, there may be a lot of people who then are turned on to meditation and go farther. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I find that in, in my journey, it was, I, I intuitively, I even think I, I bought your book actually a, a long time before I started meditating and, it, and I didn't really revisit it until I then started my practice. And that was because of the, the growing scientific research that it got my intellect on board Right. And then I could, I yeah, could start and then the... Some great research. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies now, maybe yeah. even thousands of studies done on mindfulness for anxiety, depression, uh, you know, uh, pain, uh, so many different uh, uh, health as well, overall mm-hmm. health uh, and well-being. So it has a powerful impact. I tell people, if you want to take a drug for depression, you want know, to begin with mindfulness. Mm-hmm where it takes you, you know? yeah and developing the curiosity to to break in almost moving beyond the labels that we assign to to experience and entering the, the direct experience of depression and the, the direct experience of anxiety and well i think when you enter the direct experience of depression you find there is no such thing exactly as depression yeah yeah I, this is a. I actually made a video with that exact headline not so long ago. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, what was it called? There's no such thing as depression. Yeah, great. yeah. yeah, um, yeah. It took a lot for me to do it, having had depression for like most of my adult life. But it is linked to this topic of when yeah. you really look at it under under the the light of awareness, it uh, creates. There's no fixedness, right? So it, you can move and. It's just the term that we use. We throw at. Yeah. Uh, a constantly shifting and changing uh, combination of different qualities and experiences. Yeah. It's like a cloud. When you enter the cloud, there's no cloud there. Yeah. You can't grasp it. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm wondering, with, because you also, you have the experience uh, working in, in, as a therapist as well. And you said that you, at one point you started to explore the psychology. How do you view that? balance of of labeling because a lot of people will can get solace from it but it can also be a hindrance do you find that when you work with people i avoid it it as much as possible yeah i think it has a a benefit at first it's like oh i can give it a name it's not this strange thing that's happening to me there's actually a name for it and other people experience it too that's very important yeah beneficial beyond that though i would say okay now drop it yeah that's 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 what I said in the video. So I'm glad that you said that. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's true. That's for, <laughs> for my own ego, for my own ego boost. <laughs> You're right, Ricky. Yay! <laughs> Great. Stephen says I'm right. That's it. Job done. Podcast complete. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I, I like um, and this idea as well of the importance of, of of having an integrated approach. Like if someone is experiencing like mental health issues mm-hmm. having like value in the psychology would you say that there are any er- like standout areas and again I, I know it's personal but if there's any themes that you've seen repeatedly on a, a psychological level that people could maybe explore that will give them some grounding in the western psychology if that makes sense no i don't quite understand the question um so for example, I, I've, I've personally had a lot of benefit from 
cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, which it involves engaging with thought in a way that, that certain Eastern Eastern tra- traditions wouldn't. And I'm wondering if there are any tools or, or nuggets of wisdom in psychology that could help people that are on a spiritual path who may be more inclined to spiritual bypassing or maybe more inclined to overlook the Western approach. I can't think of anything offhand. I, again, I think life provides us with opportunities. Mm. We find ourselves having difficulties, and so we need to look into these uh, issues mm. at the same time. You know, the, I mean, the, the most powerful thing we can do, of course, with any of these issues and beliefs is to recognize that's not who we are. You know? And uh, I think meditation begins that process by we realize, gee, I am aware of these qualities, you know, these feelings, experiences, thoughts, but I'm not necessarily identified with them. Mm. That's a big first step. And then you come to realize that, in fact, I am awareness. I'm not the contents of awareness. That's another even bigger step. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and, um, yeah, I think, again, life provides opportunities to examine our own psychology. Yeah. And how do you view... In terms of someone wanting to develop a awareness and use that as a vantage point, is there anything that you'd recommend to to enhance that connection to the, the true essence of, of who we are? Again, just sit and let everything be the way it is, you know. Um, you know, of course, I teach approaches to meditation and, of course, in the book, mm-hmm. you know, by Meditation for Dummies that has... You know, it teaches a prim- primarily a mindfulness approach, but has all kinds of other, um, you know, but the main thing is just being present for what is. That is the essence of mindfulness, right? That's what mindfulness really is, you know, simply being present for what is without engaging in it, without uh, pushing it away, without identifying with it. Um, that's how we develop awareness. Again, awareness is not something we develop it's more like something we reveal because it's always already present awareness of course ultimately is who we are it's our true nature but uh, as a function we can engage with it moment to moment yeah meditation is a good way to do that knowing that any word will make this conceptual and it's not conceptual in say in this moment right now and as we're having this conversation I'm aware of awareness to, to an extent. Are there almost markers or qualities of awareness? I'm thinking for people, if if there's value in being able to to kind of know, oh, that's awareness. Is, is there any pointer or any quality that, that people might be able to identify, not, not as an intellectual tool, but as a, a familiar um, feeling? Well, it's again, we can invite some kind of inquiry. You know, first of all, awareness is the most natural thing in, in the world. So, very often uh, when I teach, I'll offer uh, this very simple meditation, which is, you know, close your eyes. And then when you open your eyes, I want you to try to be aware. And then you open your eyes and Try to be aware. What does try to be aware mean? You know, 
how can you try to be aware? You open your eyes and you're already aware, right? Mm. Awareness is natural. It's innate. It comes, I mean, it's being conscious. We're a conscious being. We open our eyes or even without our eyes open. And awareness is happening. So awareness is always happening. Uh, I think that's a, one quick way to just identify it. Mm. That which is always present, uh, which allows experience to take place, right? Um, and then, you know, you can invite a reflection back upon awareness to become aware of awareness, this mm-hmm. open, spacious, um, boundaryless um, uh, expanse in which everything is occurring. You know, that can be a pointer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Something that comes to mind, and this is, this is also a, a personal question, really, because I've noticed that as my awareness has expanded... There are like emotions don't get stuck, but I feel that for there can be a, almost a misconception on on the path that you either don't have emotions or you're in a constant state of bliss. How do you see through an authentic awakening? How do you see the role of emotions changing with that enhanced awareness? I think awareness. I think emotions continue to come and go, but you're not identified with emotion. I think it's key that we don't try to suppress emotions. Some traditions do. Mm-hmm. I would say then traditionally, uh, you know, you develop samadhi, you develop power of concentration, in, in which you are, by doing that, you're, you're actively suppressing uh, emotion, which I think is why Zen in the United States got, has gotten into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it's, I think, begun to change, Zen in the West, I should say. It's begun to change. Um, but uh, I think it's really important. I mean, I often uh, recite that beautiful poem by Rumi uh, via Coleman Barks, The Guest House, yeah? Mm. This being human is the guest house, to welcome emotions as the guests in the house of awareness, yeah? Uh, so that attitude of welcoming your experience just as it is, particularly emotions, because emotions need to have space to move through. Emotion means to move out. Mm. Emotions need to move. They need to shift and change. As long as we're suppressing them, they get bottled up. They turn into more um, fixations, you could say, of attention. Yeah. Uh, so that, that true openness and welcoming is really, is really key. Emotions have a, a role to play, despite what some of the Eastern traditions on their more extreme end would say, um, how do we relate with other people you know, through yeah. our emotional life? Again, discernment is required. What is emotionality? What is reactive emotion? Mm-hmm. And what is a genuine upwelling of some important emotion that I need to pay attention to? We need to discern that. Yeah. And that's a very human function that we need to honor. You know, yeah. We're not automatons and we're not monks or nuns. Yeah. So see, see in the emotional intelligence in the sense of emotions having intelligence and working with that. Right. They have a certain intelligence. Yeah. If you were in something I find for a lot of people when they're in meditation, I, I always think of this metaphor as, as whack-a-mole, you know, that game where you have to like hit whatever yeah. surfaces. And when in a, in meditation, if someone is confronted with a troublesome thought, for example, or a difficult emotion, 
how would you guide them on on allowing that to to surface without indulging in it for example um again this is a, a meditative skill you just basically be with it as it is you avoid the key with letting emotions be is that um let go of the story about it the story that keeps generating it and just be with it as a direct experience you know let it mm. let it unfold in awareness without the story and um you know it, it will reveal itself you know which goes back to what, what we explored around like this idea of depression and yeah i think um osho talks beautifully about getting to the root of emotions and and when you do you realize that you're never going to be consumed by them and that at the root is is love and compassion ultimately mm. well i'm starting to run out of steam shall we? <laughs> yeah i i really i really appreciate you taking this yeah, time lovely to talk um, to you good lovely to talk with you oh thank you yeah yeah my ego, I'm going to have to go and do some meditation to stop my ego from being inflated. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Thank That's you so much. Work.